This episode is brought to you by Five Bullet Friday, my very own email newsletter. It's become one of the most popular email newsletters in the world with millions of subscribers, and it's super, super simple. It does not clog up your inbox. Every Friday, I send out five bullet points, super short, of the coolest things I've found that week, which sometimes includes apps, books, documentaries, supplements, gadgets, new self-experiments, hacks, tricks, and all sorts of weird stuff that I dig up from around the world. You guys, podcast listeners and book readers, have asked me for something short and action-packed for a very long time. Because after all, the podcast, the books, they can be quite long. And that's why I created Five Bullet Friday. It's become one of my favorite things I do every week. It's free. It's always going to be free. And you can learn more at tim.blog forward slash Friday. That's tim.blog forward slash Friday. I get asked a lot how I meet guests for the podcast, some of the most amazing people I've ever interacted with. And little known fact, I've met probably 25% of them because they first subscribed to Five Bullet Friday. So you'll be in good company. It's a lot of fun. Five Bullet Friday is only available if you subscribe via email. I do not publish the content on the blog or anywhere else. Also, if I'm doing small in-person meetups, offering early access to startups, beta testing, special deals, or anything else that's very limited, I share it first with Five Bullet Friday subscribers. So check it out, tim.blog forward slash Friday. If you listen to this podcast, it's very likely that you'd dig it a lot. And you can, of course, easily subscribe anytime. So easy peasy. Again, that's tim.blog forward slash Friday. And thanks for checking it out. If the spirit moves you. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now what is it in a broken time? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers to tease out the routines, habits, etc. that you can apply to your own life. You will get plenty of all of that in this special episode, which features an interview from my 2017 TV show, Fearless. The less is in parentheses because the objective is to teach you to fear less not to be fearless. Fearless features in-depth, long-form conversations with top performers focusing on how they've overcome fears and made hard decisions, embracing discomfort and thinking big along the way. It was produced by Wild West Productions, and I worked with them to make both the video and audio available to you for free, my dear listeners. So thank you, Wild West. You can find the video of this episode, which is gorgeous. I think they did an incredible job on youtube.com slash Tim Ferriss. Remember, two R's, two S's youtube.com slash Tim Ferriss. And eventually you'll be able to see all of the episodes for free at youtube.com slash Tim Ferriss. So you can swing over there and see what is currently up. Before we get started, just a little bit more on Wild West. Spearheaded by actor, producer, and past podcast guest Vince Vaughn, Wild West has produced a string of hit movies, including The Internship, Couples Retreat, Four Christmases, and The Breakup. In 2020, Wild West produced the comedy The Opening Act, starring Jimmy O. Yang and Cedric the Entertainer. In addition to Fearless, their television credits include Undeniable with Joe Buck, ESPN's 30 for 30 episode about the 85 Bears, and the Netflix animated show F is for Family. Wild West has also produced the documentaries Give Us This Day, Game Changers, subtitle Dreams of BlizzCon, and Wild West Comedy Show. And now, without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation from Fearless. 
I'm Tim Ferriss, author, entrepreneur, angel investor, and now TV host. I've spent my entire adult life asking questions, then scouring the globe to find the answers. On this show, I'll share the secrets of pioneers who have faced their own fears. We'll dig into the hard times, big mistakes, tough decisions, and how they got through it all. The goal isn't to be fearless. The goal is to learn to fear less. Welcome to Fearless. I'm your host, Tim Ferriss. And on this very stage, we'll be deconstructing world-class performers of all different types to uncover the specific tactics they've used to overcome doubt, tackle their hardest decisions, and ultimately succeed on their own terms. So my guest tonight is a revolutionary, and I mean that literally. His musical talents have resulted in the sale of more than 25 million albums and garnered two Grammys. Rolling Stone has recognized him as one of the greatest guitarists of all time, and yet he's only had two formal guitar lessons. He's a founding member of Rage Against the Machine, Audio Slave, The Night Watchman, and Prophets of Rage. Please welcome to the stage musician, singer, songwriter, and author, Tom Morello. You guys ready for a show? Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the My time. Pleasure. First Thanks and foremost, we're going to start with video. Okay. And then we'll work backwards from there. Sounds great. <laughs> All right, let's take a look. Sits in barnyard animal noises to start the thing out. What is it like to try something for the first time and then go present it to others, whether mm -hmm. it's to your bandmates or to yeah. an audience? Yeah. Well, as a as a guitar, when you pick up a guitar, you do so because you like guitar playing and guitar players. So the natural instinct is to play like your favorites. In my case, it was sort of my punk rock heroes and then Randy Rhodes and some of the heavy metal guitar players uh, and amassing that technique. Um, it wasn't until like maybe late in my college career when I, I, I was saddled with, at the time, everybody liked the Edward Van Halen guitar because it only had one knob on it, the volume knob. That was the coolest thing. I didn't have one of those. I had a guitar with a whole bunch of knobs on it, so it was quite uncool. But one of the knobs that did have on it was a, um, a pickup selector switch, which chooses between the two, you know, which pickup you're going to hear sound out of. Right. Um, and I found that if I manipulated that, the toggle switch, with one of the pickups on zero, the other on 10, it worked as kind of a kill switch. And then I could you know, like play notes here, and it sounded like it was a staccato kind of playing that I had never heard a guitar make. Then I began practicing the eccentricities in my playing, 
And once I got out of the rut of thinking that I needed to sound like other guitar players, the horizons were wide open. And the, 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 the nail in the coffin of traditional guitar playing for me was an early Rage Against the Machine gig um, in the San Fernando Valley. We were opening up for two cover bands, and the cover bands had very technically talented guitar players. They could shred like crazy and play beautifully and brilliantly. But I thought to myself, if I'm on a bill with three other guitar players who have that level of useless technique, I don't need to be the fourth one. Right. And so I veered the ship dramatically towards concentrating on the eccentricities in my playing and things that were very unique and then trying to forge into music. Now, that did not always meet with popular acclaim, both in my band and, you know, in the world at large, um, because I would be, I'd play the guitar with a pen or with an Allen wrench, which is the thing that you used to kind of change the tuning uh, on it. Or, and then I began, rather than trying to, wearing the, rather than practicing other guitar players' licks, I would just look at the world of sound. And sometimes I would sit in my apartment and just listen. And if there was a lawnmower outside, I'd do my best to approximate that. If there was a television program with you know, about World War II or about the lions of the Serengeti, whatever was coming out, I would just do my best to approximate it. And while I couldn't play those sounds exactly, I was amassing a catalog of, of, of noises and textures and rhythms that were totally unconventional and then building them into the rock and roll songs of Rage Against the Machine. I remember the exact moment, the exact room where I first heard Rage Against the Machine. Mm. It was, uh, I want to say 1992. I was mm. in Japan, first time overseas for the first time as an exchange student. And I was in my bedroom and some of my friends had sent me the first Rage album. Mm -hmm. And I remember listening to it and I was always a metalhead. And I was like, what the fuck is this? This is a, it, the, the sound is so unique and we're gonna back into that. So we won't, we won't dig into that part of the chronology right now, but I like your hat. <laughs> Thanks. It's been a good year. <laughs> it's been a very good year. So where did your parents meet? I think this might be a good uh, place yeah, to start. Yeah, my, uh, uh, my mom comes from a small coal mining town in central Illinois called Marseilles, Illinois. It's spelled like Marseille, France, but it's in central Illinois, so it's pronounced Marseilles. And for some reason, my mom is a, a single woman in the early 19, or in the mid-1940s left to travel the world by herself for about 20 years. Uh, she taught all around the globe and eventually found herself in East Africa teaching in Kenya, uh, where she met my dad. And you were born in the U.S.? I was born in the U.S., yeah, yeah. yeah. So they... They, they, part, they parted ways, uh, and my dad was part of the first U.N. delegation, and then they split. He went back to Kenya. She went back to uh, Illinois. Have you ever explored why your mom decided to travel the world by Yeah, herself? it's a question that she hasn't been able to answer to my satisfaction. My mom is 93 now, and I still ask her that periodically. <laughs> uh, but there's something, you know, sort of uh, unique in her constitution that made her you know, boldly... You know, she lived in Spain, Japan, Germany, right after World War II, East Africa. She was fearless in her travels, uh, and I've inherited at least a pinch of that. Libertyville, when did you yeah, move? Yeah, so, so, so we, we live for, uh, you know, as a, a single mom now living in the big city. Uh, she moved back where she had support from family. Uh, and then the challenge then became finding a teacher. My mom was overly qualified to teach world history and U.S. history, not just from her travels, but from her studies. She had a master's degree. Uh, found it difficult to find a place for us to live because this was 1965. And while she, uh, the high schools in the northern suburbs were happy to have her as a teacher, they warned her that we as an interracial family, meaning me, a half African one-year-old and her an Irish Italian white lady uh, would be unwelcome to dwell within the city. They should teach there. We have to live somewhere else. Uh, and the, the, the real estate agent, though, went, had to go door to door in the apartment building where we were renting to ask 
permission from the other the other uh, tenants, uh, letting them know that this was going to be an interracial family. And how they the uh, how they sold us to the locals was basically saying, "Look, this is not an American Negro. This is a very exotic African child." <laughs> and uh, and that and that worked. So swimmingly well until I was old enough to date their daughters. And then you could be the king of Nigeria and yeah. nobody, no, no dads are going to be like, in there. All right, plus one yeah, for exotic, yeah. but I have yeah. bad news. <laughs> so that was my introduction. I, I literally integrated the town of Libertyville, Illinois, according to the real estate. That there were, that prior to my arrival, there were no people of color residing within its borders. And that was at one? That was at one, yeah. How would you describe growing up in... in that town and that yeah, environment. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, I mean, on the one hand, it's this idyllic uh, Chicago suburb. There's, uh, you know, you can ride your bike, There's you can fish, there's fields to play football in, and it has a tremendous public high school system, or public school system, but then every once in a while, there might be, you might find a noose in your family's garage. Yeah. Uh, Did that actually happen? Yeah, yeah. When I, was, I saw a couple of nooses growing up. One was in the garage when I was 13, the other was when I was 15, just walking past the Brown's chicken. Um, and, and so that was... You know, that was a part of the, part of the, those, those were threads in the cloth of, yeah. of growing up there, which I kind of took for granted. I had great friends and, you know, great experiences, but it was not a, a racist-free environment. How did your mom, if she did, encourage you to respond to well, I, yeah, I mean, she, my mom uh, remains the most radical member of the Morella family to this day, and uh, I was at a daycare place, I was probably four years old, and there was an older kid, a couple years older, who was race-taunting me and beating me up or being very physical with me on a daily basis. I would come home to my mom, and, and she, at four years old, taught me about a fellow by the name of Malcolm X. She said, you must stand up. You must stand up. here for Malcolm X. You must. The story, the story gets pretty dramatic. Well, the, uh, the, uh, so she said, she said, you know, you have to stand up for yourself, you have to stand up against racism wherever and whenever it rears its head. I'm like, Mom, I'm four. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, she gave me like something, the, the person was, you know, had a particular litany of epithets that they were calling me. Uh, and so she gave me, I had to memorize something to say back. I forget, it was like, you know, cracker ass cracker. <laughs> I, I don't know what it was. I didn't know what any of the words meant, but I'm like, this sounds like this is going to be trouble tomorrow, Ma. And, uh, <laughs> and then she like, you know, she like balled up my fist and said, and you go at him. I'm like, this sounds horrible. This is a big kid. Horrible. So I go there, like dreading daycare the, the, the following day, and I, you know, and I'm there, and the kids on me, and they're n-wording me, and they're attacking me, and I'm like, you, acker, ass smacker, whatever. I can't really remember. Yeah. And I take, and I start going at them, and it causes such a ruckus. I'm losing the physical battle, but it causes such such a ruckus that the the person who ran the daycare for the first time paid attention to the disagreement, and I got to, with smug satisfaction, watch as the young racist child's mouth was washed out with soap in front of the whole crew, <laughs> and I went, there might be some of this Malcolm X. <laughs> what, what effect did that have on you? I, and it, I know that sounds like a very generic, yeah. maybe boring question, but... Well, I mean, as someone who didn't grow up with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, people, people ask, like, how were you politicized? And it wasn't from reading, you know, uh, Noam Chomsky in high school. It was recognizing... That there was there was grave injustice on the playground, uh, and that's something that was it's part of my DNA. Was that I had a very sort of uh, strong base of support in my home and uh, a feeling of self worth that came in sharp contrast to you know like and I had many good friends. This was not you know it was not there was Klan in Libertyville, but there was it was 
a, a lot of great friends and a lot of great teachers, a lot of supportive people. But I you know, did come up regularly against people who did not think because of the color of my skin I was as smart as they were, I was as good as they were, that I was as you know, decent a person as they were. And, but I came, I had, had the, my spine was steeled by the love, care, and resilience of my family to know that I'm just as good as anybody in the room. And, you know, and uh, so, well, and so it was with, with confidence that I went into the, you know, the, sometimes the troubled stuff that came up. Do you self-identify as black? Is yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've thought, I mean, while I'm, I'm genetically uh, half-white, yeah. as the only black guy in an all-white town, you're pretty, I was the blackest yeah, black, yeah. black ever got. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> None more black, man. <laughs> so... <laughs> When did music enter the picture? Yeah, I did. Um, I loved rock and roll from the time, you know, maybe 11 or 12 years old. And, you know, Kiss was my first concert. And, it, you know, it dovetailed with my love of comic books and sort of the superhero elements. Uh, but then the aggression of the electric guitars of, you know, the bands like ACDC and Black Sabbath, I was, you know, full 7-Eleven suburban parking lot metal all <laughs> up, and, up and down the line. Um, <laughs> And I love music, and I actually played in a band when I was 13 years old as a singer. Before my voice changed, I was able to do a, a pretty good Robert Plant impression. But uh, when, it, when it descended into the rich milk chocolate baritone you hear today, uh, it was clear that I was not going to be auditioning for ACDC, so I had to switch to guitar. I mean, I've had the experience... I think like a lot of kids, my first album I ever bought was Master of Puppets. Oh, sure. And oh, I'm like, all right, I'm, hard songs to I'm, learn. I'm going to be Kirk yeah. Hammett. <laughs> Lo and behold, yeah. demoralized a few weeks yes, later as yes. I stopped. So yes, there's a lot of opportunity to be de demoralized when beginning guitar. Um, when I first purchased my guitar uh, at 13, it took me four years to actually play it. But I took a couple of guitar lessons and I wanted to learn uh, Led Zeppelin and Kiss songs. So I plunked down my $5 at the music store and said, teach me these. And they said, no, son, today we have to learn to tune the guitar. That sounded like a huge waste of time to me. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, I'll put in my dues. I'll put in a week's worth of dues and learn how to tune this thing. So I came back the next week and said, now it's time for Detroit Rock City, right? He's like, no, this week we're going to learn the C major scale. I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> that is some BS, man. That's a waste of everybody's time. Uh, and the, so the guitar sat in the closet for four years. And at 17, I had the, uh, the punk rock revelation that, that, that many do. Like, until that point, like, all the bands I loved, it seemed it was completely inaccessible. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a, a, a basement in suburbia on which to practice, and these guys had castles on Scottish locks. <laughs> and, you know, and groupies and limos and, and guitars that cost $10,000. I, I, I had a $50 guitar in a basement. When, you know, I got the Sex Pistols cassette, I was literally in a band within 24 hours of purchasing the cassette without knowing how to play one note on the guitar. Yeah. I ran into the Libertyville Drama Club and announced, we're gonna be a band, I've got a guitar, so I'm gonna be the guitar player. The first three of you that raise their hands are in the band regardless of musical experience. <laughs> so, was, was three guys raised their hands. <laughs> And then at that point, how did you... Well, we wrote songs. There were, there were three bands in my high school, and um, uh, one of them was Destiny. And those, that was the pretty boy band. They got all the ladies. They played Sticks, Kansas, Journey, and they just owned the school. Yeah. And then there was the bad boy band, Epitaph. And now they covered Black Sabbath, ACDC, and they would, they would not stoop to play a school function. It was garages with ripped jeans and weed. And we all, like, admired them from a distance. We were all afraid of them and admired them. And then there was the Electric Sheep, my band, the Drama Club band. And... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> we didn't have the technical ability to play other bands' songs, so we had to write our own. So from day one, we were writing our own, and from that band, two of the founding members of that band went on to form Rage Against the Machine and Tool, so we were vindicated in the end. Did you want to be a guitarist, or was it just... I wanted to be a part of it in some way, and then I had a guitar, and then the the thing about punk was that it's like I no longer... There was there was no longer a barrier. Right. It's like the, my, the bands that I liked, like The Clash and The Sex Pistols, with no musical experience, my level of technical ability was not too far distance from theirs, and yet they were my favorite bands, making the best music that I had ever heard. So I thought it, I uh, had a formative experience seeing the band The Clash, which was my favorite band of all time, playing at the Aragon Ballroom in Chicago. And uh, in my, my high school band, The Electric Sheep, I had a sort of a cheap Music Man amp on a chair in my mom's basement where we would practice. I saw The Clash play at the Aragon Ballroom. Now, I'm used to seeing these bands play these huge venues with walls of Marshall stacks, some of which are dummy cabinets. But I saw Joe Strummer on stage at the Aragon Ballroom. He had the exact same cheap Music Man amplifier that I did on a chair (laughs) on stage at the Aragon Ballroom. And that was the revelation that made me realize it's not, oh, I can do this someday. It's like, I'm doing it. He's doing it. it. We're all doing it. We're We're all just in bands. And that felt pretty good. What was the process like of teaching yourself guitar? The guitar at first was an instrument to be in a, a band. And then it later became a calling. Like I had a many varied interests, uh, but it was when I was about 19 years old where it's, sometimes you choose a thing, sometimes a thing chooses you. And I really felt the guitar chose me. I had no choice in the matter. Um, and then I applied my OCD to the instrument and was practicing at sometimes up to eight hours a day, 365 days a year. Are you doing it by ear? Are you just trying to mimic? Entirely you... by ear, yeah. Not, not even, I, I, didn't, I never really had the ability to, uh, a, a, I never had the strength of like learning songs off record. The other thing, you know, to, to sort of do a Psych 101 analysis of why, I fell so deeply into that. I, I think I, as a growing up looking back, it was a matter of control. There are a lot of things sort of in growing up that I did not have control over. There was sort of a race issue. There was maybe a, you know, romantic, you know, sort of a deficit <laughs> issue. Things that you just didn't have control over. Sure. I had control over this. Mm-hmm. Like, it's my will and my will alone that will determine the outcome of what happens if I apply myself to this. You, like, it's just me that makes the decision here. And that was very, very appealing. And then when you start playing two hours a day, you notice, like, the tide rises quickly. So you bump that to four hours a day, and all of a sudden... Like everyone around you is marveling at, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, when you go to eight hours a day, that's when it, you know, it kicks in. <laughs> Pretty happily. Now, clearly well-spoken guy, how did Harvard end the picture? Uh, well, I, uh, I was the first person from Libertyville, Illinois, to ever go to Harvard. No one had ever applied before. Yeah. So after then, after I got in, then the floodgates opened, and now it's... It's recognized as the passion of intellect and culture. But you all, well, you all mean, suspected it might have been. Ju- so, yeah. yeah, I mean, you just need... You just need one exception to the rule, right? I yeah. mean, to show yeah, yeah, what's yeah, possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What were the most important things, if anything, that you took from that experience at Harvard? At Harvard? Uh, I mean, one, there you know, some lifelong friendships that came out of it. And also, like, the, uh, the, the reality of... You have to take risk if you're going to change the world. There was a big anti-apartheid demonstration. We, we built a shanty town in Harvard Yard during the graduation when all of the, um, you know, the alum come alum, and are parents. asked for, you know, to give a lot of money back to the university. And we completely ruined Harvard Yard by a Soweto-like shanty town in the middle of it. And we're all threatened with, you know, expulsion or this, that, or the other. And you just have to make a choice. Like, are you going to yeah. do the safe thing or are you going to do the thing that's right? 
so you graduate. Did you continue with the poli sci? Yeah, I graduated in political science, and then, but with a, like I said, it was a calling. I had interest, but music and rock and roll was a calling. And I knew as soon as I graduated, I was going to move to Hollywood because that's where the rock magazines told me I needed to go to pursue my dreams. So then what? So I load, I loaded up the Chevy Astro van and drove and drove into the sun with all my crap in the back and a dream in my pocket and about a thousand dollars and a dream. Was your mom supportive? I should have I should have paid better attention in X10 because a thousand dollars lasted about <laughs> four days when I moved here and all of a sudden I was destitute. What did your yeah? My mom was very supportive. She I mean she, she given her history of yeah. kind of. Um, a bucking convention, it was not surprising, but she was completely supportive. I took, I got a Harvard degree and I'm gonna go move to Hollywood to try to play rock and roll. She's like, great, rock on. Did you have any uh, plan B in your head? There was no plan B. I arrived in Hollywood with big ideas about how I was going to form my dream band. I didn't know exactly what it was gonna be, but I knew the groups that I liked then were Run DMC, Aerosmith, uh, Public Enemy. Like I wanted wanted it to be political. And so, So I naively put out ads in all the local press saying, um, uh, shredding guitar player seeks uh, awesome Marxist front man. <laughs> Influences Run DMC and Iron Maiden. I did not get a lot of replies to that. Not get a lot of replies to that. Um, so I, I had on my apartment in Normandy, I put a uh, the little thing outside the door with like basically job applications to join my band. My band that does not exist and that no one's heard me play a note of music, but somehow you're going to walk up these stairs in the apartment of Normandy, sit on the landing, and what are your contacts in the music industry? Yeah. You know, what are you like? That went very, 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 very poorly. Let's talk about the exotic dancing. I, I got one thing to say about that. The rain ain't going to pay itself. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I, have, I have so many questions. You got questions. a bachelorette party? I, I, I've got a cassette tape of Brick House. <laughs> so, so I know this show. I gave you this whole thing on Fearless. I just want to ask a thousand questions about this. So uh, the first is, what was your stage name? There was no stage name. There was, it was no. Just, it, was a, it was a duo. It was like we had like sort of a. It, it was, was a bachelorette parties. Yeah, it was a duo. It was like me and another dude. We had like a routine. What were? Do you have any like signature moves? They're they're lost to the you know the the. Dusty annals of time. <laughs> the burning mound of There were signature moves. Like you know, it was you know we would arrive in suits and you know with some lame excuse as to why we've barged in on this bachelorette party. <laughs> oh, excuse me, we thought this was the such and such. Chew right. brick house, yeah. and then just off to the races. When did you first hear lockup? I was playing in some. I joined some bands just to be in bands that were not particularly good bands. But there was a band, a local band called Lockup. Um, it was playing in a place called Al's Bar in downtown LA. It was, it was a life-changing moment. I saw what then became my favorite local band. It was a band that combined you know, sort of elements of the Chili Peppers, and it was funky, it was hard, and it was, but it was new. It was what alternative music would later become, but was bubbling around in the underground in Los Angeles. Um, Later, I happened to be rehearsing in the same place as this band Lockup. They heard me playing through the walls. When they got rid of their guitar player, we connected, and I joined that band. And that band eventually got signed to Geffen Records, which was my foot in the door to the record industry. When you guys got signed, what was the response? Well, I mean, it, it gets, it's, the, it's the brass ring. It's yeah. the thing you've heard about. You think, you know, when you're in suburban Illinois, you, when you get a record deal, that you're a millionaire. Yeah. 
exactly the opposite. It's like, hey, let me tell you. Um, you know, you're, if you were penniless before, now you're in debt and penniless to, you know, to the record company. And we, every cliched, bad dicking that happens to artists happened to that band. They, you know, they tried to manipulate and change the band's sound and make it more commercial. Uh, Money-wise, we're completely screwed over. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, we had like a second guaranteed album that we we're gonna, you know, we didn't make it on the first one, but we're gonna, gotta, we're gonna try this time. They just said, we're gonna drop the band right now and you don't have the money to sue us, so too bad. Wow. And that was that. And I thought, well, I tried. And um, I had my grab at the brass ring. It didn't work out. So that being the case, um, I'm just going to make music. I'm a musician. That's what I am. I'm just going to make music that I believe in and not care about making, getting a record deal or any of that anymore. So Rage Against the Machine. Coming together with those band members, how did, how did uh, Zach come into the fray? Well, Zach and Tim have known each other since they were kids okay. and grew up together. And it was just sort of a fortunate combination of, of musical convergence. Um, Brad and I played together for a while, then he went. All, he knew Eddie Vedder. He left to play with a fledgling version of Pearl Jam for a minute. So during that time, I met Tim and Zach, then Brad came back, and finally we got in a room in August of 1991. I think it was the first time the four of us were in a room together. How did you develop I mean, some of what we saw in the beginning? Were you already there, or were you what, looking for inspiration yeah, in other places? Yeah, a lot. Of, I mean, the, the, the left-of-center guitar playing that... Um, the barnyard animal noise stuff. Uh, while I had some of those arrows in my quiver, it really wasn't until Rage Against the Machine when I was the DJ in the band. It was a band, we proudly put on the records all sounds made by guitar, bass, drums, and vocals because there are a lot of sounds on those records that are not traditionally associated with guitar, bass, drums, right. and vocals. Um, and I was very much influenced by, you know, um, Terminator X of Public Enemy and the Bomb Squad that produced those records and by Jam, and by Jam Master J and by... And by, and by Dr. Dre, and like the sounds on those records, I, rather than practicing Chuck Berry and Jimi Hendrix licks, I would try to approximate the sounds that I heard on those records. And while I wasn't always able to get them exactly right, it just put my mind in a completely different place and maybe look at the instrument of guitar in a very different way. It's a relatively new instrument on the planet, and there's no reason to assume that it has predetermined limits based on the records in your collection. And it's just basically a piece of wood with some wires and a few electronics that makes sound, and you try to make sound in different ways and then make music out of that sound, that became, I started practicing in an entirely different way and it helped form a, um, a sound that felt like it was authentic. If you're challenging the boundaries of any genre, music, you're, burst, you're saying what came before is not all that there has to be. There can be something beyond that that is yet unimagined. If you say you do that in a musical context, you can also do that in a societal context. And so part of the, you know, exploring those sounds was not just because I like to hear a guitar make a quacking noise because it's trippy and fun to do, but also it really challenges the boundaries of what has come before on the instrument and perhaps leads to the idea that we can challenge boundaries beyond that music. When did you know it was working? Yeah. And then how did your experience with Lockup yes. change how you did this? Yes, yes. The, the, well, I knew it was working. The first time we ever performed in front of other humans was at a house party in Huntington Beach. And I had been in a lot of bands, and I had never seen... I'd been in a lot of bands and been in a lot of shows seeing a lot of bands. I never saw an audience respond to music the way that people responded to Rage Against the Machine at the first show I ever played. It was like the parents were out of town. They, you know, we, we knew five songs... It was at a, I think maybe a friend of Tim and Zach's uh, living room in Huntington Beach. We played, the, fir the first song we ever played in front of people was a song called Take the Power Back. And a 
pit started in the living room. They thrashed the living room, went ape shit for five songs. Then they, we just play those same five songs again, <laughs> and they went double ape shit. And I, was like, and I, 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 I'd never felt anything like it. Um, and that's how it was from day one. With the, I mean, the, the the chemistry of that band was like that from day one, and the reaction was like that from day one. Now, when it came to interacting with the evil music industry that we had, you know, I've been burned by. It was, I think it was very helpful to have that experience because I didn't. I knew what it was like. Having a record deal doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. So there was nothing to hold over our heads. They would call up, you know, record companies, managers, publishing companies. Everybody would call up and say, you know, we'd like to take the band to lunch. I'm say, we're not interested unless you fax me over a document that says in every any transaction we ever have, the band has 100% creative control over what they do and veto power over anything that you do. Then we'll have lunch with you. Did, did you guys have a, a financial cushion or anything like that at that <laughs> point? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a futon cushion, but I did not have a financial cushion. <laughs> no, we had between us then, I think we had uh, one job and two cars. <laughs> Was there any disagreement in the group about how to take those calls or not take those meetings? Uh, I mean, it was a... You know, we talked about that stuff. You know, I had been th I had been through it before, and I was a, maybe a few years older than the other. But but we were. It was all the decisions were were collaborative. There is an excitement when you know heads of record companies come down and offer you the world, and but we dampened down that excitement and took our time making a decision. When did you pull the trigger? Well, we met. Uh, there was a fellow by the name of Michael Goldstone who had signed uh, Pearl Jam, who was ascendant at the time, and he you know saw us play and. He said something that no that no one else had said. I mean, people wanting to sign the band, basically like a two-song cassette, you know. And he came in and said, "I'm not sure I want to sign your band." And I thought that was an interesting thing for someone to say, yeah. and that opened a discussion. And um, he was very interesting. He was the fifth Beatle for the the beginning. He was a very important, like, collaborative partner. Uh, let's take a look, if we can. I just want to take a look at, at uh, one of the videos we have for Rage Against the Machine. thinking at one point when I, I, I'd seen footage of a number of performances and every time I saw it, I, think, I, I remember thinking to myself, this is the only band where I'm wondering if the audience is going to tear this like, stadium auditorium to pieces. What was the magic there? Uh, what what, what was the nerve that, that I mean, you I mean, struck? <laughs> but, but if you had to um, speculate, I mean... Well, I mean, I think that um, the shows were just so insane. Like, they were so incendiary and, and like, and Zach is a tremendous, a tremendous musician and lyricist, but as a front man is like like the greatest, like he's like the punk rock James Brown. Like he's the greatest as a, as a lightning rod on stage. And there is a, a, a meaning to the band's music that transcends it being a great rock and roll band. The other is 
it's a great rock and roll band. Like that's how like people like oh well, how how do the politics like. If you don't have that vehicle, of, and it's this chemistry that naturally happens in the way the four of us played together, almost from the very first rehearsal, certainly from the very first couple of shows to that, which was, I think, Woodstock 99, um, that, that it gives off um, uh, an aggressive, aggressive energy that allows this kind of this, this feral release. There's something about music that is, you know, music, there was music before there was spoken language and there's something in the like our reptilian brain that responds to a communal gathering with rhythm yeah. you know and that that's just something that's in from campfires campfires and mammoths um and when you get that combination of 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 rhythm and a rhyming couplet and an, and a and a gathering of the tribe like that and you do it right um that something like that happens were you nervous at all before 99 Woodstock? The, before that actual concert? Yeah. No, I mean, no. The, the, that concert devolved you know, over the yeah. course of time. I will give you a couple of other instances, though, that where, there were a, where there was a real barrier to, a, a fear barrier. One was um, in the early 2000s, I began doing, uh, playing acoustic songs under the moniker The Night Watchman. Uh, and I would go to, uh, I began signing up at, open mic nights under that name so I wouldn't sign up under Tom Morello because there would be an expectation of playing Bulls on Parade. Uh, and I would play these, you know, Dylan-esque, Woody Guthrie-esque political folk songs. And, you know, at this point in my career, I had played in front of millions of pe people live and I was terrified playing in front of eight people who weren't particularly listening to my songs anyway with a, with a, with a latte machine grinding in the background. <laughs> but, but, like, would I remember the lyrics? Because I felt very vulnerable. When I'm on stage with Rage Against the Machine or Audio Slave, if my guitar were to snap in half, the show would still be great. They are gonna, they're going to be fine. Yeah. But when it's just you, you and your guitar and, you know, the intimacy of that moment, it was terrifying. And I, you know, through time learned to do that. Let's pull up a video of Night Watchman, because right. I think it's a good contrast to what we've seen already. On the side of the dirt road An old Chevy wreck I climbed through the window I sat in the back I gathered my thoughts With my head in my head Listed demands I slip from shadow to shadow I saw things I should not see The moon rose high over the garden the garden of Gessam. So I wasn't worried about the audience tearing out seats and <laughs> rioting in that. It's very yeah. different. It's a very, yeah. Yeah. It's a very yeah. stark contrast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before, say, a performance like that, yeah. or any performance for that matter, what are your rituals or routines preceding that? Um, well, there's still, uh, there's still a bit of an uh, anxiety barrier. Uh, and while all of my rock and roll work 
is done, has, is done stone sober. There's a level of technique involved in that that I must be very, very present for. There's a lot of Jameson involved in the Night Watchman performances, <laughs> truth be told. <laughs> Jameson therapy. I've heard about that. It's like there's Felden, a, it's like there's, Feldenkrais. There's a bit of a you know a bit of a, the the anxiety about sort of remembering lyrics and this that and the other that goes away when you know it, it sort of dampens down those Enough voices. Enough courage. You're going to forget your you're going to forget the lyrics. <laughs> um, but but those I mean I, I began doing that because uh, well I love playing in rock bands and rock bands allow a um, uh, a chemistry that no one person can uh, put forward on their own. I like the purity of the solo singer-songwriter thing, too. And it's also, you can do it guerrilla style. Like, I've played at you know, hundreds, dozens, thousands of, of protests and you know, marches, and you just need an acoustic guitar and a plane ticket or a bicycle or a, 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 a ride over there. And I really like that kind of independence of spirit. And I, I, and I always was a fan of heavy music, and when I discovered the early Dylan, the Springsteen, Nebraska record, the Woody Guthrie stuff, the Johnny Cash acoustic records, that it dawned on me that there's no heavier music than some of that. Like, you know, Metallica Black album is super heavy, but, um, you know, Springsteen's Nebraska, it goes toe-to-toe with it, with no amplifiers in sight. What led to the end of Rage Against the Machine? Well, Rage Against the Machine really has, had, has, had two, has had two lives. I mean, uh, uh, while, while it was a band that um, professed uh, solidarity in our music, we were never able to manifest it almost from day one within within our own ranks. Um, and you know, and I wish that I could tell you that the, the 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 conflicts were political ones. They were, you know, just you watch Spinal Tap, all the yeah. stuff. Every rock band, there's only four or five boxes to check. We had, you know, three of the four. Um, uh, but I mean, and you know, my contribution to it was like I was always super type A and had sort of the the, the musical, the political, the record goal in mind, and would not uh, and would sometimes turn a deaf ear to the feelings of my bandmates. I've learned that lesson through the years that that's a very important. You have to get that right first, or none of the rest of it matters. Um, and so, in you know, in 2000s, Zach quit the band, and we formed a band called Audio Slave. And but Rage reunited in 2007 and played shows for a few years, which was very nice to. to the question that I've wanted to ask all night was, how did you end up having a reunion with your father? Uh, well, I basically met my father when I was 34 years old. Uh, we had, he had not had anything to do with our family uh, growing up. And throughout uh, you know, my life, my mom had sent to the P.O. box that they had in Nairobi in the early 60s, you know, updates on me. You know, like your, you know, your son graduated from high school, your son went to college, your son got a record deal, this, that, and the other, and had never heard, never heard back, decades of not hearing back. So we went to um, uh, Kenya for the first time, my first time to Kenya, uh, when I was 34 years old, and my mom had written to my dad, who she hadn't heard from in decades, said, you know, please meet us at the airport. So we're flying, you know, into Nairobi, and my mom tells me, I'm like, mom, like, he could be dead 25 years and certainly doesn't have the same P.O. box as he did back then. She's like, oh, I'll bet he'll be there to meet us. So we land. He's not there to meet us. But we arrive at the Hotel Intercontinental where there's a note from him. Sorry I couldn't meet you at the airport. I'll pick you up for dinner tomorrow at 8, uh, which was stunning. Uh, and the, I realized not only am I going to see my father for the you know, first time uh, in a very long time tomorrow, but that he had received all of that stuff through the years and, and, it, and not commented on it. Uh, so we met, and it was crazy because, you know, with those of you who are blessed with having two parents, you've seen them before <laughs> and seen mine. So, you know, I look a lot like some combination of the two of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, we went, it went 
you know, fairly well, somewhat awkwardly, but he had received, he commented on some of the music, not the music so much, but some of the lyrics and the music. And um, he had remarried, and I had three half-brothers who we were never allowed to meet and did not know that we existed. Uh, and that wasn't awesome. So, uh, you know, we exchanged a few terse letters after that, and I thought, well, at least I got to meet my dad, and that's that. It turns out that one of my half-brothers, unbeknownst to me, was attending Georgetown University. This is at a time when um, search engines were being discovered and whatnot, and he was a computer guy, and he put in his father's name to some developing search engine, and to his surprise, a hundred articles referencing a man with his father's name and a similar biographical background was referred to by a guy named Tom Morello, who was the guitar player of a band called Rage Against the Machine. And he, and it coincidentally, serendipitously, it was the same week when Rage was on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. So he went to the newsstand and saw a guy in that band that he just read about who looks more like his dad than he does. <laughs> <laughs> and he managed to find me, and you know, we had an interesting discussion, and and the toothpaste started to get out of the tube, and. Uh, I began to meet my Ken. It turns I learned their name. It turns out there were a couple of first cousins who were attending Pepperdine University, and so I met them. My brother Segeni is his name, who discovered me. Calls up our dad back in Kenya uh, with a phone call my dad thought was never going to. Crazy. Uh, so this will give you some indication into the how the Kenyan male would react to such things. So, uh, Dad, what do you know about a guy named Tom Morello? And this is what my dad, how my dad responds. <laughs> if he doesn't talk about it, it doesn't get talked about. Yeah. And that's the end. That's the end. That's the end. So, um, but, you know, my uh, gr then girlfriend and now wife were very charming people, and we've, we're now friends with the family. Like, the brothers have come, they stay at our house, everybody's great. And we uh, go to my brother's graduation at Georgetown. The attendees at the party will be myself, my fiance, my brother Segeni our dad, and his wife, who doesn't know anything about anything that's going on. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're sitting at dinner, and uh, my, my uh, brother has taken great relish at each step of the way in re the, the, the reveal. The reveal. And now the biggest reveal of all is about to happen. Um, and he announces... So he's like the illusionist. Yeah, he's like, oh, wait, it, get, it, get, it gets He better. announces at that dinner um, that... Um, you know, that this is his brother. And at first, you know, people think that, oh, like your bro. He's like, yeah. no, my brother, like biological brother, like my dad's son, brother, mom. <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't have been more gracious given what must have been a pretty stressful dinner for her. And he maintained his silence throughout. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it all turned around and he... Uh, welcomed me to the family. He apologized to my mom and thanked her for raising a good kid uh, and was, and kind of opened the door to, yeah. What, what catalyzed that shift in him? Uh, I think it, it may have been the passing of his younger brother, mm -hmm. uh, who was an advocate, but then his older brother is the uncle who we, who, who we know. And again, there's a, there's a sort of a hierarchical, at, this was my, my uncle's 80th birthday, and he announced that his younger brother, my dad, would now introduce his family to everyone. And I think he was just trapped then. <laughs> and he took a lot, it took a lot, but he did. He, at the end of the day, he did the right thing, and he sat me down, he, he asked for my forgiveness. And, and he's, since I've had kids, he's very much in their life, and they've, 
they've melted him in a way that is really lovely. He just had his 88th birthday now, and he came to my wedding and stuff. So it's been it's been really, really lovely to connect with that side of the family that I never thought that I would have. So we're going to shift gears a little bit yep. and go to audience questions. Sure. Uh, if you weren't a guitar player, what would you do for a living? Hmm. Um, well, my, my twin passions have been uh, always been music and politics. It would certainly not be something in conventional uh, uh, two-party politics, but uh, I would probably be working as a community organizer or something like that. Mm -hmm. This next one's from Facebook. If you had to teach someone guitar in three months, what would the curriculum be? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was a guitar teacher for a while during my cool. um, semi-homeless days. And... Uh, uh, what I taught, this, the lesson that I learned, when I took those bad guitar lessons where they wanted me to do the boring stuff, I applied that when teaching, you know, brand new guitar players. In the first guitar lesson with every student, um, regardless of their skill level, I would teach them to write a song. They would write a song in that first guitar lesson and try to, like, smash that barrier between there's these mythical gods who make music and there's you who one day might hope to, you know, touch their shoes. Like, you're a songwriter today. I'm going to teach you two chords. You decide what order they go in and how long you play each one. Boom, you've written a song. Like, you and the Beatles now are both songwriters, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and there's a... I would see in them this kind of, like... like holy crap, like, I can write something. Tomorrow you might write another one. And that's what I'd give them as their homework. Like, you write another one for next time, and then we'll, you're going to have a catalog of six songs in the first three weeks of your playing guitar. And we can work on the other stuff right. along the way, but I mean, it's called playing guitar, and that sort of enthusiasm comes from early successes. What are the biggest wastes of time mm. that you see novices making? Yeah. Like, diligent ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what are the wrong things to focus yeah. well, on? I'd say it depends on what you want to do and who you want to be. Because there's, there's a, uh, I believe there's a clear delineation between musicians and artists. And if you, like I said, when you start playing guitar, what you want to do is you want to sound like, you're, so you're trying to be a musician. I'm tr I love Angus Young. I want to play Angus Young songs. At some point, are you going to go beyond, you have to make a determination. And many people are, delighted and content to be able to learn and play their favorite songs and jam along with the radio. But if you have a vision that goes beyond, uh, you know, aping the technique of your favorites, then you have to take a different step. And that is a step into risk and a step into the unknown to say, this is what has come before. Now I'm going to write my own songs. I'm going to take a risk that people are going to hate those songs. And I'm going to take a risk of putting myself out there. It's not like, hey, check it out, I can play Van Halen. It's like, hey, check it out, I wrote this song that includes my Van Halen influence and this, that, and the other, and here it is. And that's the only way that you know, art grows, and it's, as an artist, that's the only way to grow. What would you say, I guess maybe that's the answer, yeah. but the follow-up to that would be if, if you're, say, teaching a ninth grader mm -hmm. or tenth grader, mm -hmm. really talented, and they're like, I want to be a creator, I want to yep. be an artist, and they get up there and they just bomb. Yeah, yeah. Crickets, maybe booing. Everyone, yeah. yeah. Right, so you're what, not alone. In that, what yeah, would yeah, you yeah, tell yeah. them before or after? Yeah, well, that. I tell them, first of all, you, the, you're bombing. The one thing you have in common is with everyone, every, I'd say name the five artists who you love the most, and I would ensure them that all of them have bombed as bad or worse as they just did then. And then it's a matter of sort of continue. What did, what did you learn from this? And, you know, maybe there's a lot of, like, you know, basement you know, music heroes. You have to play with other people. That helps you in a way. You have to play in front of other people. That helps you in ways. And that you do that over time and you will amass a, 
you'll, you will have the opportunity to discover who you are as a musician and or as an artist. What books, if any, have you gifted the most to other people? I, well, certainly, the one book that I've gifted the most in my life was a book that I first wrote when I was 15, and I reread it almost yearly. It's a book called Watership Down. Watership uh, Down. And Watership Down. And uh, it's, uh, you know, I've read books that have been, you know, more serious political tomes in my time, but the heroism, courage, and friendship exhibited in that book among a number of rabbits about rabbits but it's about much more than that is uh, and it's it is the single most breathtakingly exciting book that i've ever read as well watership down. watership down yeah. richard adams a strong endorsement for that book right now <laughs> do you have a quote or quotes that you live your life by or think of often hmm. Hmm. Very interesting questions uh um, give me a minute and we can come back to sure that. no 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 i'm gonna have something for you there is a quote from, um, written by Joe Strummer of The Clash. I cut this, I wrote this down and put it on my refrigerator as a, you know, as a youth. Uh, it says, uh, are you taking over or are you taking orders? Are you going backwards or are you going forwards? And I would look at that on my refrigerator and I would try to answer those four questions for myself every day. That is good. That is really good. What purchase of $100 or less, and this is all rough, in recent memory has most positively impacted your life? Mm. Purchase in recent memory. Well, I can tell you, one purchase yeah, was anything for that comes 40, 40 Canadian dollars. I'm not sure okay. what the, what the, what the, exchange, <laughs> the exchange, rate exchange rate is. Uh, but uh, I bought a guitar off a pawn shop wall in Toronto years ago in the early 90s. I just liked the look of it. It wasn't, I don't think it was made, it's like made of plywood. It's not even like really made of wood. Um, and that was the only guitar I used on a song called Tire Me on the Rage Against the Machine Evil Empire record, which was the band's first Grammy. That was 40 Canadian dollars wow. well spent. Can you tell us about Prophets of Rage? Prophets of Rage is uh, the band that I am in, in now. Uh, it consists of Be Real from uh, Cypress Hill, Chuck D and DJ Lord from Public Enemy, and uh, Timmy C and Brad Wilk from Rage Against the Machine and Audio Slave. And it's a band that uh, was formed in the, uh, in the tumult of the 2016 election. It is a band that will continue into the future. Uh, the two things that we can be certain of is that, uh, you know, looking forward, is that there will be injustices in the world. We can also be certain there will be resistance to those injustices, and th that resistance needs a soundtrack, uh, and it will be provided by Prophets of Rage. <laughs> Should we pull up the video? Uh, 
you know, uh, uh, you know, dangerous times demand dangerous songs. And when we formed this band, uh, that was our first ever public performance, which was a free show for the homeless people on Skid Row. Uh, we, uh, it was the... We wanted this band to, from, you know, from the onset, to not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk. Uh, our, first three sh- of, of our first eight shows, any show which we charged a dollar for, all of them went to local homeless charities in the cities that we were in. And, and, the, shows, and the shows that were free shows were on Skid Row and were at Norco um, Penitentiary in Southern California um, and at the protests outside of the RNC. So it was like, it's a band we wanted, it's, it's in set from day one, we wanted it to, you know, like, live it like we were going to play it. And so that's a very exciting band to be in. If you had a huge billboard, you could put a few words, short message on it for the world to see. What would you put? A few words. Uh, yeah, short. Just a short uh-huh, message. Uh-huh. Uh, People are driving, texting, being idiots. <laughs> you know. Whoop, there it is. We <laughs> <laughs> can work with that. Or the Chicago Cubs are the 2016 world champions. I love you too. Uh, there, I think there are a lot of artists out there, you know, creators, who want to impact the world. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're intimidated. Maybe they don't think they can. What would you say to those people? That's all they have to do is take a glance at history. You know, um, And the first thing to do is ask yourself, has, you're saying, artists exclusively? Like if you're, has, has any art ever affected you? Right. You know, that's the first question. And I know for me, it was bands like Public Enemy and The Clash, that they didn't, they didn't necessarily change my mind about things, but they made me, they connected me to a bigger world than the one of Libertyville, Illinois. It made me think, oh, there's other people that see things the way that I do. They're not my teachers. They're not my, they're not the governor of my state, uh, but they're musicians who, and they have an audience. And when I go to see their show, all of a sudden there's a community that's beyond you know, my suburb or the, you know, my job at the Dairy Queen or wherever. And so I would say that that's anytime you broadcast your soul artistically, be careful because somebody may be listening and that you can make a connection that you wouldn't otherwise. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Morello. Thank you very much. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just one more thing before you take off, and that is Five Bullet Friday. Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little fun before the weekend? Between one and a half and two million people subscribe to my free newsletter, my super short newsletter called Five Bullet Friday. Easy to sign up, easy to cancel. It is basically a half page that I send out every Friday to share the coolest things I've found or discovered or have started exploring over that week. It's kind of like my diary of cool things. It often includes articles I'm reading, books I'm reading, albums perhaps, gadgets, gizmos, all sorts of tech tricks and so on that get sent to me by my friends, including a lot of podcast guests. And these strange esoteric things end up in my field and then I test them and then I share them with you. So if that sounds fun, again, it's very short, a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend, something to think about. If you'd like to try it out, just go to tim.blog slash Friday. Type that into your browser, tim.blog slash Friday. Drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening.